Matthew 1, 1 through 17 this morning, a perennial Christmas text, beloved by all. I say that a little bit facetiously, uh, because if you read it this week, you probably did not think that. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you actually did the reading this week? I get if you didn't, if you skipped through it and and did what uh, I have been prone to do myself in the past. You started reading it, and -and so-and-so begat, or and this guy was the son of this guy, and you went, this is eminently skippable. Let's get to the Christmas part. You went on down to verse 18. But no, we're going to be in the first 17 verses today because they are important. The genealogy is not skippable, even though we may sometimes skip it. Matthew's historical record of Jesus' ancestry is key to understanding his entire biography of Jesus. Matthew, from the get-go of his gospel, wants to establish Jesus' pedigree. He wants us to know that Jesus is a legitimate king, that Jesus is heir to the throne of David. Indeed, that he will embody the very blessing promised to Abraham. I mean, that's just part of verse 1 really exciting. But before, before we get into everything, what I want to do on the front end here is make an application, uh, then we'll lay out kind of our roadmap and then uh, put our main idea in bold, if you will. And the application before we even get started is this. Read the genealogies. I mean, they're, they're scattered throughout scripture. Uh, read them. And, and, and you'll find that if you just take the time to do a little bit of work in them, you're, you're going to be really blessed. If you just give a little bit of time to mining these portions of Scripture, you will find diamonds within them. One of my favorite ways to do this is by simply picking out names that I recognize and and some that I don't, and then going, all right, where do these guys show up in the Bible? And and I'll try to show you how we do that a little bit this morning as we work through uh, this uh, lineage of Jesus. Um, But but do it. It's going to help you going to help you understand uh, what the author is arguing for, uh, especially if you ask questions like, why did he put this genealogy here? Why did he include the people that are in the genealogy? It's going to help you understand the whole thrust of the text that you're reading. And and that's true here in Matthew's gospel. And so it's it's a healthy discipline to read genealogies. And so I exhort you to that end. Be excited about the genealogies of the characters throughout scripture. Be excited about the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew 1. We're going to work through it this way. We're going to see that Jesus is the king of all in verse 1. We're going to see that Jesus brings blessing to all in verse 1 as well. And we're going to see that Jesus is the savior of all in the last 16 verses. That's 2 through 17. The main idea is this, what I want you to hold in your mind as we work through uh, the text together. You can put it in the background process or on the back burner, is that Jesus is the King and Savior of all. Jesus is the Savior King that brings the blessing of Abraham to all who will have faith. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us now. That we might understand rightly your word and make application of it to our lives. Father, help us to hear these truths this morning and to not allow them to just escape quickly out the other ear. But Lord, help us to take them in 
apply them to our lives, that we might become more like you. Father, remind us of the good news of the gospel once more this morning, that indeed uh, we're not perfect and we never can get to you on our own, but that Christmas is all about you coming to bring us back to yourself. Father, we thank you for the message of this season. We thank you for living the life we could never live and dying the death that we should have died. We thank you for the resurrection life that you share with us when we put our trust in you. So we ask that you guide our time here together this morning as we examine the beginning of your life with the beginning of Matthew's genealogy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's look at verse 1. It starts this way. Uh, the historical record or the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What Matthew is doing here at the front end is giving Jesus a grand entrance, if you will. He's turning the music up, he's throwing the doors open, and he is announcing that Jesus has showed up. He's saying the King and Savior whose birth marks a new beginning for God's people is here. He came. This is his story. Right? If you've ever been to a wedding reception and, and the MC like gets, builds up to the bride and the groom and everybody's eyes are on them and the doors spring open as they come into the room. It says, for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., you know, whatever. Everybody's excited. That's what's going on with Jesus here. Matthew is getting his audience excited about who this person is. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he marks Jesus, first of all, as the Christ. Right? That's the anointed one or Messiah. Uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? It wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and they didn't have Timmy and Tommy and Jesus Christ running around. Right? It's a title given to Jesus. The title Christ and its Hebrew counterpart, Messiah, both derive from words meaning to anoint with oil, and they express the conviction that Jesus had a divine appointment to his office and his function. Christ marks Jesus as the embodiment of God's promises. It gives description to the kingly office that he holds. So, you can think of it this way, just like we often sub in the president for whoever's leading the country at that particular moment in history, so too the authors will sub in Christ when they're referring to Jesus. And so you, President Reagan, President Lincoln, uh, so too, Jesus Christ. There's only one of him, though. He's the only one that holds this office, but the idea is the same. Christ is a title applied to who Jesus is, and his designation as Christ signals to Matthew's primary audience, which would have been a Jewish audience, that Jesus is the king they have waited on since the time of David. The title and the subsequent mention of Jesus as the son of David, it gives Matthew's gospel a um, an anticipation. You, you, can, you can tell there's something important going on here. And Matthew's going to argue throughout his genealogy and the rest of his gospel that Jesus is the Savior King the people have waited on. The, the genealogy is here to prove that Jesus meets the necessary lineage qualifications to sit on David's throne. He's the Messiah King. The goal of outlining Jesus' family tree for the reader, it, it's not to give every name of every person uh, that Jesus descends from. It's important that you understand that because uh, there are obvious um, and uh, a few um, omissions. 
But Matthew's doing that on purpose. He's, he's doing it because he's, he's making a point about who Jesus descends from. You see, Matthew um, is just like many ancient genealogies. He, he's organizing the genealogy in such a way to make a point. He wants us to know that Jesus has a legal claim to the throne of David. Uh, and you can set his genealogy next to Luke's, at Luke's and they're going to look a little bit different. Uh, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is biologically descended from, um, from David and Adam. But Matthew wants us to know that he has a legal claim to the throne. And so the genealogy will look a little bit different. They're, they're used in different ways. Matthew is leveraging his genealogy to demonstrate that Jesus has the heritage and the right to the king to be the king of Israel. And he's going to go so far as to tell us, he explains to us a little bit how he's organized his genealogy, if you want to skip down to verse 17 real quick. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. If you're keeping track, that's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus' arrival. And this arrangement around the number 14 gives Matthew's vignette a a, a sexy literary symbolism, right? It, it, It is making the point that Jesus has descended from David. See, see, Jewish people, like many ancient people, uh, loved number codes. And so uh, they had this deal wherein they would ascribe numbers to the consonants in someone's name, right? So the consonants in David's name are D, V, D, right? D, V, D, I didn't. Anyhow, uh, in Hebrew, uh, D or Dalet is the fourth, let me make sure I got this right, it's the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, hey, Vav. Vav's the other one, that's V. So, so V is going to be six, D is going to be four, and if we add them all together, four plus six plus four, guess what number you get? Fourteen. And if you look at this genealogy that Matthew's set up, do you know whose name comes as the fourteenth name? David, right? And, and so the point, it, this is actually kind of cool. This is what people came up with before the internet ruined our creativity with cat videos and, and Netflix and, and, and YouTube and the like, right? This is kind of neat. But, but Matthew is organized the genealogy and he's done it in such a way to practically shout, this is the one you have been waiting on. Jewish person walking in darkness. The light that you've been waiting for has dawned. He's come. If you don't get this right away, uh, some of you follow like the royal family over in England. I don't do the British thing. Uh, But but Matthew's showing us that that Jesus is of royal blood. He, He has a right to the throne. He's also inviting us to see Jesus as the one who brings the blessing of Abraham to God's people. You see that we've seen Christ as his title. We've also seen that he's got the the lineage to the king, David. And now we're seeing that he's the one who brings the blessing promised to Abraham. All three of those things are in verse 1. Very pregnant and very important verse. If you remember God's promises to Abraham, they, they, sh- they show up a few times, excuse me, a few times in Genesis. Sounded like I was going through puberty there for a second. Uh, they show up a few times in Genesis, uh, and, and they say, hey, I'm going to bless the world through you. I- I'm going to read one from Genesis 22, 17 through 18. It says, God speaking, says, I will surely bless you 
and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations or people of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's how Abraham expressed his faith through obedience. Paul refers to this in Galatians and some of the other passages throughout Genesis when he's writing to um, the church there in Galatia. And he says this in Galatians 3.16. He mentions it twice throughout chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 16 and then uh, 7 through 9, and I'm going to try to put it all together to make sense of what we're, how we're going to see the blessing comes through Jesus. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as though referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. What Paul is saying in in this verse is that all the offspring of Abraham, all of Abraham's seed, all of Abraham's children have failed in one way or another to bring blessing to the world. They've failed to bless the nations. I mean, Abraham himself failed. Moses failed. David failed. Solomon failed. All the prophets fail. And Jesus failed succeeds. Jesus is the perfect offspring of Abraham. He's the true and better Israel. He is the one who brings blessing to the world, to all of those who have faith. Look at it next to Galatians 3. Uh, Well, I'll start at verse 6, actually, and go down through 9. This is what Paul's writing in that same chapter. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Paul Paul is arguing that righteousness is the consequence of faith and that the faith needed to belong to Abraham's family comes only when one puts that faith in Christ. It's the criteria of belonging to the family that blesses all the nations. The gospel is a universal blessing to everyone through Abraham because Jesus has come as the offspring that fulfills that promise. The promises made to Abraham find their reality in Jesus. The world is blessed through Jesus. And Abraham's offspring, those of faith, have become as numerous as the stars and the sands. Matthew uh, agrees with Paul's assess- assessment, right? They, they, under, they have the same theology. They both understand that Jesus is the one in whom all these promises of the Old Testament find their yes. He's the one in whom they're fulfilled. And so he's utilizing Jesus' holy pedigree to teach that Jesus is the Savior King who brings blessing to all who believe. When we read Matthew's gospel, we're being called to respond to believe in Jesus as our Savior King. I mean, we're be, being invited to start over again. We're being invited into a new beginning. Jesus' advent marks, marks a new beginning. The ascension of a new king. The, the inauguration of a new kingdom and a new covenant. Matthew, Matthew's 
makes this point boldly also in verse 1, though it's not as noticeable, uh, by drawing on language of Genesis, right? Uh, the word he uses for genealogy uh, in, in Greek is pronounced uh, genosios. I'm going to mess it up. Genosios, right? And, and it comes from the root word that you might find more familiar. Uh, Genesis is how we say it, right? And that, that's the title of the book of Genesis in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. And, and so uh, all that to say what Matthew is doing here is he, he's announcing that his book, like the book of Genesis, is a book about beginnings. And he's saying this Christ, this Messiah King that was to come, the one that's going to sit on the throne of David eternally, the one who's going to bring the blessing of Abraham to the world, is also ushering in a new beginning for you. If you believe in him. And it's quite the introduction. And it's going to be quite a new beginning. This new Adam and this new Israel is going to succeed where everyone else has failed. He's going to be tempted in, in a garden-like state, but he's going to succeed. He's going to be tested in the wilderness, but he's going to succeed instead of fail. He's going to earn the blessing, and he's going to share that blessing with all who follow him. Such an introduction. I mean, in, in one verse, we are confronted with Jesus. So the question that, that looms large over Matthew's entire gospel and over this section and that first verse is this. What will you do with the king? The king has come. Will you bend the knee? Or will you continue in rebellion? What will you do with Jesus? Maybe you are here uh, and you're looking for a new beginning. Jesus offers that and so much more. Maybe, maybe you're somebody here and, and you've been a Christian uh, a long time, but you've never really believed that Jesus could love someone like you. That, that he, how could he care with, for somebody who is as sinful and as wretched as you are? Well, I think Matthew's genealogy has something to, to say to you on that count. Matthew's genealogy shows us that he offers a new beginning to, to anyone and everyone who has faith. I think another thing we'll see in it is that Jesus loves messy and messed up people, right? We're going to see this a little bit as we climb up his family tree and make some observations. Now, we live, we live in a more individualistic culture uh, in which the way that you kind of recommend yourself to other people uh, is by showing them your work experience and a list of your degrees and accomplishments, but, but that's not how it's done in a more communal, uh, family-oriented society. Right? In Jesus' day, the way you recommended yourself to people uh, was with your family, uh, the, the people that you were connected to, right? And, and so Matthew's genealogy, it not only tells us about Jesus' family, but serves as a, a resume, if you will. Right? T Tim Keller writes this, genealogies were a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. It's interesting to know that in those days, people tinkered with their resumes just as they do today. We tend to leave out the parts of our track record that might not make us look good, and people did that in ancient times too. We know that Herod the Great purged many names from his public genealogy because he didn't want anybody to know that those people were connected to him. 
The purpose of the genealogical resume was to impress onlookers with the high quality and respectability of one's roots. Matthew's genealogy does that. Shows Jesus has a legal claim to the throne of David. But, but his genealogy is also strikingly different from other ancient genealogies. He includes men and women of, let's say, uh, questionable character. Uh, you can think of your, your own resume a little bit here, right? Uh, you put stuff on there that makes you look good, stuff that's significant, but, but you probably are not going to put uh, on there the time you spent moonlighting as one of those sign flippers when you were in college, right? Probably, that's probably not making the cut. If you do put it on there, you're going to say advertising technician or advertising engineer instead of sign flipper. You're trying to make yourself look qualified for uh, the position that you're applying so we have to ask, did Matthew screw up here by including some of these not-so-great-looking people? I think the answer is no, right? Maybe if there was just one name on there that we went, oh, that, that guy. I don't know how he made the cut. Maybe Matthew, this is an accident. Uh, or even if there was just one name of one woman, right? W- women in a society that was dominated by men at the time, their names did not make the cut for a genealogy, right? So just one, uh, one name of one woman on a genealogy would be really, really weird. Matthew's got five. Also notice, he's arguing that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Three of the five women that are included in Jesus', Jesus genealogy are Gentiles. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. I mean, including these women in Jesus' genealogy uh, would be like putting on your resume, sometimes steals money from the cash register. Or, or often takes the food of others from the break room. Right? It's not, it's not going to make you look very good. But you see, Matthew includes them on purpose because Matthew's, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast and the scandalous and the foreigner because the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that Jesus comes for. Catch that? Jesus' genealogical resume shows us that God cares for outcasts, failures, villains, and non-heroes. And as we look at this cast of characters, I want you to uh, keep in your mind these two observations that God loves messed up people and that God saves them. God loves and saves messed up people. Look at verse 2. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah. And his brothers. Now, all, some of you really like Jacob. You probably know that the story he becomes Israel. But, but Jacob was not such a good dude, right? I don't think we're off to that great of a start. He, he, he's a cowardly thief. Remember, he dresses up in Esau's clothing. He has, he, he's more feminine. He stays at home and cooks with his mom. Esau's out hunting. And he puts on Esau's clothes. And, and he gets some goat hair and puts it on his hands. His dad's sight's going. So his dad thinks that he's Esau. And he steals the blessing of the firstborn. Then he... Runs away and hides from Esau really, really long time. But still, despite his imperfections, uh, Jacob struggles towards taking hold of the promise of God. God rewards his faith by his grace. Changes his name to Israel and and blesses his descendants. You see, right away we see uh, Jesus' genealogy isn't perfect, but that God loves cowardly thieves like Jacob. That God saves cowardly thieves like Jacob. Not to mention Abraham who used to lie and say his wife was his sister and all kinds of things like that. He loves Abrahams. 
spineless men who shrink. He loves them. Verse 3, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Verse 3 provides us with what is perhaps the most scandalous name on the list and the first woman, and that is Tamar. And her story is a crazy one. It's also one of my favorites. If you've been around me a lot, you know I love this story in Genesis 38. We've, we've preached on it and, and worked through it. But let me give you the short version to, just to jog your memory a bit. Uh, Judah, who is a son of Jacob, son of Israel, marries his firstborn son, Ur, not a great name, to Tamar. And Ur was, quote, this is the quotation from Genesis 38, wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And so, uh, the responsibility of leveret marriage, or brother marriage, fell to the next son of Judah. His name was Onan. Now, Onan was happy to sleep with Tamar, but because of the children that would come from their sexual union would be considered his older brothers, uh, he took, we'll say measures, uh, he, he took some measures to make sure that she didn't become pregnant despite uh, their sexual interaction. Uh, God does not like how Onan is treating Tamar, and so we read in verse 10 of chapter 38, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. And so the responsibility of leveret or brother marriage then fell to Shelah, Judah's third son and last now, he was younger, and so Judah comes up with this uh, story and says, you know, he's not old enough to get married yet, Tamar. When he's old enough, when he comes of age, I'll, I'll, you guys can get married. We'll fulfill this custom of brother marriage, which is aimed at protecting Tamar because uh, as a widowed woman uh, who's still in her father's house, your prospects are not great for a good life. You're, you're going to be in poverty. So he says, just go move back in with your folks, and then when he comes of age, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get you all together. But we know he has no intention of doing that, right? The text tells us in Genesis 30, he's afraid that Tamar is a witch or something, and that as soon as Shelah and him get married, like, it's not going to go well. So time passes. Tamar kind of recognizes that uh, Judah's playing a game. We're told that Judah's wife passes away. And then Tamar discovers that Judah is heading to a sheep-shearing festival in Timnah. That sounds innocent, but it's not. Right? It's more like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Right? Uh, it is a party, sheep shearing. And so, so Tamar decides that she's going to trick Judah into fulfilling his responsibility to her. And she dresses as a prostitute. Prostitutes at the time wore veils so you wouldn't see their faces. And she waits to seduce Judah as he's on his way to this sheep shearing Mardi Gras. Long story short, she's successful. Now, Judah then finds out she's pregnant. He gets real mad. He says, she's pregnant by immorality. She's promised to my son, Shelah, burn her. That's what he says. Burn her. She's a witch, right? If you're familiar with Monty Python. Uh, so he, he, wants, he wants to burn Tamar. And then she says, she hits him with this note, I am pregnant by the one to whom these items belong. And what she produces is Judah's signet, his staff, and his cord, which what she had secured in payment when they had slept together. And those items in ancient times, it would be like having your social security card, right? Or and your passport. Like, she's like, I'm pregnant by you, is basically what she's saying. And, and so what happens is Judah repents. He says, Tamar is more righteous than I am. Tamar has twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And the story ends. 
And this, this story actually interrupts the narrative of Joseph, which everybody is a little bit more familiar with typically. And so the story just picks right back up in Joseph. I mean, you thought your family was messed up, right? This is, a, this is quite a story. What is it doing in Jesus' genealogy? It's showing us how a sovereign God uses the weakest and messiest of people to accomplish his purpose. I mean, Tamar is a scandalous model of faith. And she becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the king. God loves forgotten widows. God saves messed up people and uses messed up people like Tamar. Judah's not all that bad either in the end. Uh, Like I said, he he repents. He says Tamar's more righteous than him. Uh, We see him uh, further in uh, Genesis as he embraces Joseph in that hug and asks him to forgive him uh, for selling him into slavery with the rest of his brothers. Yes, that's the same Judah. (laughs) Sold his brother into slavery. Did all this mean stuff to Tamar. Like, this is a bad dude. But this is the same guy that God says the scepter's not going to depart from the house of Judah. This is the lineage of Jesus. See, God loves fornicating slavers like Judah. He can save and use messed up people like Judah. Look at verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Another, another woman. Rahab's story is incredible. Uh, if you remember, she's a prostitute living in Jericho, and she's heard that all of God's done for Israel, and everybody's kind of scared in Jericho. And so when these two spies from Israel shows up, she says, hey, I've heard about what Yahweh is doing. Stay with me, I'll hide you. And she hides these guys from the king, and as a result, she is saved from the destruction of the city. Her, her whole family. She ends up married to Salmon and mothering Boaz. God loves sexually immoral prostitutes like Rahab. They're not beyond his saving. God can save messy people like Rahab. Again in verse 5, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, well, we're also pretty familiar with the story of Ruth. We preached it at the back end of Judges. Remember, we did Judges and Ruth together. Uh, but to refresh your memory a little bit, Naomi leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab with her husband and sons. Her sons get married to foreign Moabite women and then proceed to die. Uh, both girls say to Naomi, who is impoverished, we're going to hang out with you uh, forever and ever. Uh, and Naomi says, no, that's not a great idea. I've got nothing, and we're, that's just like we're going to be homeless and, and not do very well. You should go back home and look for other spouses. It will go better for you that way. And Orpah goes, you know, that's logical. And she goes back home. Uh, but Ruth hits her with that really famous line in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. At that point, Naomi's like, all right, come on. And so they they go back to Bethlehem together. Uh, They're scavenging for food. What what you would do is you would go behind uh, in the fields where people had already harvested, and the stuff that fell on the ground, God had made provision that you just leave that there so that poor people could come and harvest it. And so Ruth is picking all that stuff up so her and Naomi have something to eat. And she discovers that she's harvesting in Boaz's field. And then she talk, gets home and talks to Naomi. And Naomi's like, Boaz, I know him. 
He is in line to redeem us. He, he could marry you and change our situation. And so she comes up with this semi-risque plan, uh, and, and they, they put it in force. But basically, Ruth sneaks into the place where Boaz is sleeping in the middle of the night and just lays down next to him, right? Boaz wakes up and he's like, who this? Like, I, what happened? And, and she, she says to him, you know, basically, she proposes that he propose to her. And Boaz, being a, a nice guy, he does that. Right? Bo- Boaz ends up loving Ruth, a woman of a different race than him, and an outsider to Israel. He, he redeems her, along with her overly involved mother-in-law. He redeems her out of destitution and into his wealth. The book closes with Ruth being valued at more than seven sons. That is, the, she's more valuable to Naomi than the perfect son. As she gives birth to Obed, who will become the father of Jesse, the father of David. There's another genealogy at the end of the book. Genealogies are important. And this, this genealogy shows us that God loves foreigners and outsiders and aliens. God loves the roofs of the world who feel like they don't belong. God can save messed up women like Ruth. God also loves the Boazes of the world who are sometimes too cowardly to do the right thing right away. God can save messed up people like Boaz. Look at verse 6. And Jesse fathered King David. Then David fathered Solomon. Also note it's King David. Everybody else just gets their name, right? Father King David. And then David fathered Solomon. And so at this point in Jesus' resume, we're going, yes, things are getting good. Not one king, but two kings on your resume, you're a shoe in Matthew's starting to do a better job. But, but then he adds this note, screws it all up again. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. He's intentionally drawing our attention to David's failures. Right? By mentioning Bathsheba, we are reminded that David creeped on somebody else's wife when he should have been at war, ordered her, brought to him, semi-kidnapping, raped her, you don't tell a king who's telling you to have sex with him, no, and then killed her husband in an effort to cover all of it up. God loves lazy, murderer, rapist, liars like David. God saves and uses people like David. Don't miss that God loves Bathsheba either. It's honoring her by including her name here. He, he, she gives birth to a king named Solomon. She, she is valued by God. God also loves victims of sexual abuse. Loves those who have lost loved ones way too early. God can save and use messy people like Bathsheba. We're going to do the tail end a little bit quicker here. We have verse 7. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amnon. Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Then after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. 
Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Basically, we've got all kinds of people in these last verses. Good kings and bad kings, somebodies and nobodies like Mary. The point is that God loves good kings and bad kings and nobodies like Mary. God can save messy people, whether kings or beggars. He can save messy people, whether somebodies or nobodies. Because God's grace can overwhelm and change and redeem the messiest of sinners. That's who he came for. Jesus came to rescue messy people. Came to save anyone that will put their faith in him. And the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that he has come for. We are just as messy as the worst of sinners. But, but what Jesus does is he takes messy people like us who, who put their faith in him. He adopts us into his family when he calls them his church. I mean, we as those who put our faith in Jesus are, are simply a, a community of redeemed sinners who by grace are, are declared perfect in Christ. And so positionally we are righteous, but practically we're not there yet. And so we're a community of people that are working together to change, change, change more and more into Christ-likeness. We're becoming in practice what we've been declared in Christ, which is holy. The church, we're a group of people who celebrate the work of the gospel in worship, community, and mission together. But we are a messy lot. Right? But because we're so, we're so messed up and we're not perfect yet, sometimes belonging to this community, committing to one another, can, can feel like belonging to a family of a thousand drunk uncles, right? Not everyone is easy to get along with, right? can't tell you, everybody always complains about Dale. <laughs> I'm kidding. I say that because everybody loves you. We're messed up. I messed up. Right? God, God saves messy pastors like me. But we've experienced grace. And we're growing together. So we accept and receive one another and offer grace, kindness, forgiveness, and patience to one another just as Jesus has accepted and received us and offered to us grace and kindness and forgiveness and patience. See, Jesus takes us and says, no longer are you outsiders, but you are insiders. You are part of my family. Church is family. This is the family Jesus came for. This is why we promise to commit ourselves to one another and to God. We commit ourselves when we sign the little church membership covenant to gathering together. We say we're going to help one another follow Jesus even though we're going to screw it up a lot. We're saying, I'm here to help you on this journey. M membership in the local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus is working together towards a better future. 
God loves us even though we're so messed up. God can save anyone. See, the gospel is for the sick, not the healthy, right? It's for messy and broken people. The gospel does not say the good people are in and the bad people are out. It says everybody is out, and it is only by faith in the grace of God that anyone can be in. The bad people that say, I'm broken, I can't do this. I need your help. Those are the ones that are adopted into God's family. Those are the ones who are saved. Jesus saves the messy. And you are a mess. The question is, will you let the Savior King redeem you? Will you turn from trusting in your mess and your own works righteousness to find satisfaction? Will you turn from your counterfeit gods, these things to which you look to give you life, and trust in the real God, the only one who can bring the blessing of Abraham to you. Jesus' resume signals us to who he is and what he came to do. He's a Savior King who has come to bring blessing to all who will put their faith in him. He does this by substituting himself for us and uniting us to himself. I mean, think of, if you just think about how Jesus has come, it's not how you would have planned it. Right? I think of King making an entrance. I think for some reason, people knock me for Disney references, but I love it, getting ready to go to Disney. But at the beginning of Aladdin, do you know how Aladdin, I guess it's made not quite the beginning, but Aladdin shows up, he's got that wish granted to him by the genie, and they come in, uh, they make this grand entrance, he's trying to impress Jasmine, and Robin Williams sings that song, right? Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, 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 and there's elephants, and they're showing off all of his wealth and how cool Aladdin is, and this is why he deserves to be loved. He needs to be recognized as a prince. That's kind of how I would expect God to show up in human history, with great fanfare. But Jesus doesn't come with the sound of trumpets and the beating of drums. He isn't born in a palace or laid in a crib of gold. Instead, he enters the realms of men by moving into the womb of an unknown virgin girl and being born next to livestock and placed in a feeding trough. We've said it before, but the nativity scene has for us Jesus' whole life in seed form. He will be marginalized. He will be rejected. He will be seen as insignificant. He will be laid down on wood. At the beginning of his life, it is in a manger. At the end of his life, it is a cross. Jesus is the one who's come to bring blessing to the world, not by making uh, the entrance of a king, like we would suspect, not by conquering the world, but by being conquered for the world. The the incarnation, and I've said it a couple times now, this is one of the two supreme miracles of Christianity, and the more I think about it, I might call it supreme A. The transcendent becomes eminent. The unborn is born. It's amazing. The uncreated becomes part of his creation to save us. He, He comes to live and lay down and raise up his life for you and for me. He comes to fix this mess we've made. 
In the incarnation, it's all about how God has identified himself with us so that we can identify ourselves with him. See, see, Jesus identifies with us so we can identify with him instead of our sin. Because our sin deserves judgment. That's how evil can be ended. But Jesus, what he does is he comes, he earns the blessing of Abraham for us. He shares it with us when we put our faith in him. And he takes from us our mess and our sin. And he absorbs the wrath of God in our place. Wonderful truth. This is how he rescues us. He brings us peace with God. And he raises from the dead to prove that point. To show us that indeed he's mighty to save. Indeed God has accepted the sacrifice. Indeed peace with God can be had. My hope is that you would trust in this resurrection life this morning. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives us the opportunity to change our identity and to start over, to begin again, and to join God's family by trusting in him. The question for you is, will you follow the king? We've had quite the introduction to Jesus in Matthew's genealogy. We've learned that he is the embodiment of the promise, promises of God, that he's the savior king who brings blessing to all who will put their faith in him. I mean, we should rejoice that Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner, and that the family he comes from anticipates the family that he has come for. Thank God that Jesus came to save messy people like you and me. When we confess him as Lord and follow him with our lives, Jesus is the Savior King who brings blessing to the world. That's what Matthew's announcing. Will you follow the king? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the healthiest relationships we enjoy are uh, good gifts to be treasured. But we know they're only a scent and symbol of what it means to belong to you. We thank you that in relationship with you, we get to experience a foretaste of the wonderful eternity that is to come. Father, we thank you that we get to experience it now. We thank you that you saw fit to rescue broken people like us and put us in relationship not only with yourself, but with one another. Pray that you would help us to live faithfully in community with one another as we aim to become holy as you are holy. Lord, together, uh, we not only celebrate your birth during this season, we not only look to your death and your resurrection during this season, we not only uh, rejoice in your ascension to heaven during this season, but we also look forward to the time when you will split the sky and return on horseback with a sword in your mouth and a tattoo on your thigh, ready to end all evil. Lord, we look forward to that day when everyone truly understands what it means for you, the prince, the king of all the earth, of all the universe, to bring perfect peace. Father, we anticipate the fullness of our hope, which has already come in part, coming in its fullness with your return. 
Lord, you are the King. And we pay homage to you with song this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.